Our gospel reading this morning is from Matthew 13, verses 16 through 17. This is a time when Jesus is talking to his disciples uh, specifically. They has actually been preaching to the crowds and has told a parable that the disciples find particularly confusing. And so he is uh, explaining that to them. And uh, then as a part of that, we get verses uh, 16 and 17. But before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. God, we pray that you would help us in our hearing of the word this morning. God, that we would have ears to hear. God, we pray that you would uh, help us in thinking through what it is that you have said to us. God, that we would understand. And Lord, more than that, we pray that you would help us uh, to be those who are ready to be changed by your word and by your spirit. Becoming more the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 13, verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then turning to our New Testament reading from Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. We've been looking at this chapter a bit over the past several weeks, this uh, chapter of describing how people were living by faith and what that looks like. And uh, in talking about people like Abraham and Sarah, um, then it picks up in verse 13 through 16, And says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it was about this time of year, uh, about 26 years ago, that I had a, what seemed like a chance encounter at the time, and yet looking back, wasn't such a small and insignificant thing after all. This was when I was uh, just starting school, and I had been in college, oh, maybe a week or so. And my roommate, who, long story there, is actually the wrong roommate. There were two guys by the same name. There was a mix-up when they handed out the keys, and by the time we figured it out, everybody already moved in, and so we left it. My roommate um, and I were walking across campus, and he knew... He saw somebody he recognized from a school he'd gone to previously. So we start talking to her, and then she says, Oh, uh, well, my roommate is someone you also know. Would you like to go say hi? He says, Sure. And I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know any of these people. I'm just tagging along. I don't even know why I'm here. And so we go, and we meet uh, this person named Diana, and we talk for a couple hours that night, and then we leave, 
and that's that. And it seems like one of those things that in the moment, no big deal. Just another, you know, meeting somebody. And yet, <laughs> 26 years later, four kids later, <laughs> uh, you look back at that moment and you say, that was maybe more significant than I realized at the time. <laughs> I think that's the same kind of thing that we get with the passage we're getting ready to read right now. Is It's a passage... And that seems on the surface like no big deal. In fact, when you first read it, you kind of wonder why it's even in the Bible. It's just, it's just an account of Abraham. His wife dies and he needs to find a place to bury her. And so he does. And we kind of read it sometimes like he ran out of milk and so he goes to the store and gets more milk. It's that insignificant. It doesn't really matter, does it? It most certainly does. Anyway, we're going to uh, pick up the story of Abraham in uh, chapter 23. Read about exactly what we just said, this seemingly insignificant incident of him um, finding a place to bury Sarah once she has died. And then we'll see the significance of this. Uh, this is, as I say, Genesis chapter 23. So Sarah lived to be hundred. And 27 years old, she died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field. Accept it from me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. There you go. See what I mean? It just looks like he needs a place. He gets a place. End of story. Done. Why are we even reading this? Um, we'll get there. But first, I want to make sure we understand uh, exactly how this interaction is going. This is uh, Abraham 
needing to purchase this place. And when he's talking with, um, with Ephron, it, who owns the place he's trying to buy, it seems like, and it kind of reads like, what's happening here is Abraham is wanting to pay, and he is wanting to, and Ephron is just wanting to give it to him for free, and Abraham's like, no, I'm going to pay. Is that how you hear it? I've heard it like that a lot in my life. As it turns out, uh, that's not really what's going on here. Um, and I saw this pointed out in uh, something I was reading on this passage specifically. And once you see it, it's clear. <laughs> but before that, I couldn't see it. That uh, if you'll notice, every time, did you notice how many times it says, listen to me, like between the two of them? Listen to me, blah, blah, blah. Listen to me, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that what's happening there is every time they say, listen to me, it's like they're making a counter offer. And once you notice that, oh, yeah, they are actually saying something different every time they go along. Um, listen to me. Here you go. And so the Hittites started out, listen to us. Um, you can have your pick of all the places. None of us is going to refuse you. All right. And then he makes the counter offer. Well, listen to me. And then he says, I want this cave, the one that belongs to uh, Ephron, son of Zohar. And he describes where it is. That's the cave. That's the one I want. All right. So far, so good. And then Ephron, who's actually there in the presence when they're having this discussion, gets up and is like, well, listen to me. Uh, he says, it's not, not just the cave. You can actually have all the land that it's on as well. So uh, the way that I've always heard that is more of a, you know, I've missed that there was a distinction between the field and the cave or just the cave and all that. And I was thinking, he's like, hey, let me buy this property. And he says, no, you can have, I'll just give it to you, this property. But there's actually a distinction. Abraham says, let me buy this cave. And he says, not just the cave, but the whole field and everything there. And you even see later all the trees that are within the borders. And then Abraham says, listen to me, I will pay for the field. And so he's including the field as well now, all the property, not just the cave, but the field as well. And then Ephron says, listen to me, uh, here's how much that's going to cost, <laughs> which is 400 shekels of silver. And then it's, but what is that between you and me? I've always heard that as kind of a, uh, but you don't need to pay that. Is that how you hear that? I hear it like you don't need to pay it. Apparently, if you uh, follow through with the way that the Hittites are viewing Abraham as what they call a mighty prince or a prince of the gods, actually, um, they are viewing him as someone who, is, who has got a lot of standing in the community, even though he's not really a part of the community. And so uh, when he's saying... What is this 400 shekels of silver between you and me? He's saying, a man of your standing, 400 shekels is like nothing, right? I mean, this is, you can handle that. I can handle that. I can let it go for that. You can buy it for that. This is not a big deal. And so it's actually a way of saying, this is not a big deal. And that's where I say, as we read through this, we kind of read it. It's not a big deal. It's a big deal. So uh, then it says, uh, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms. And he weighs out for him the price, the 400 shekels. And then he gets the field and the cave and all the trees within the field. And it was all deeded to Abraham as his property. 
And you'll notice that all of this happens at the gate of the city in the presence and the witnesses of all these Hittites. Why does it happen like that? Because contrary to what you see on the cover of your bulletin, they didn't sign documents back then (laughs) to transfer property. It was a matter of uh, just witnesses in the community. Who owns this? Well, Abraham owns that. Well, how do you know? Because we all saw when Ephron had owned it and he sold it to Abraham. It's his now. And that's how they uh, did the business. And so this, again, just seems like a normal business deal. And there you go. Abraham needed a place. Now he's got a place. I would say this is actually a very significant step in uh, Abraham's faith. This is a very significant step in the progression of the plot of the story that God has been telling from the beginning, the way in which God has been working through human history and in the lives of his people, something very significant is taking place here, even in what seems like an ordinary type of business deal uh, for back then. And here's what I mean by that. Abraham and Sarah had been married for a long time. They've had some ups and downs, as every marriage does, although theirs are particularly bizarre when (laughs) you read some of the things we read about of him uh, telling various uh, people groups, no, no, that's really my sister. So then they all went to marry her. and Some significant ups and downs. There's the issue with Hagar and Ishmael and then sending them away. They've had their ups and downs, but they have been together for a very long time. And so when she dies, he is understandably grieved. And he is mourning for her. And says he, uh, he goes to mourn for her, to weep over her. And for however long uh, that is, then there comes a point where, well, we've got to do something to bury her. And he needs to find a place. This is where things take a different turn. Because if you have ever been the person in your family responsible for that kind of decision of where to bury someone, you probably know uh, how this typically goes even today. Where do you typically bury someone? Typically. Where other family members have been buried, right? Does Abraham or Sarah, either one, have any other family buried in this area that we're talking about here? Not even close. If you remember in chapter 12, Abraham was told to leave his, uh, uh, his family, his father's house, his country, to go to a place that God would show him. And God has promised to give him and his descendants this whole land. As you follow through the story, there's a part where he and Lot separate, and then God tells Abraham to just look all around you. All of this is going to belong to your descendants. Abraham doesn't have any descendants at that point. That doesn't matter yet. This is all going to belong to you all. So now, fast forward, you get to the point where Sarah dies, and at this moment, Abraham has a decision to make. Do I do like everybody in my family has done before? Do I travel, take her back, and go find the places where we have buried our ancestors and bury her there? I still own no property here. I only have uh, Isaac as a descendant. Ishmael too, depending on how you look at things. 
But at this point, it doesn't seem like the promises of God are happening. They definitely aren't happening quickly. And so Abraham um, makes a decision not to go back and bury her in the land where her ancestors have been buried. But to bury her here where he believes his descendants will be for generations and generations to come. Do you see the difference? The decision to buy property to bury her, buying property to bury her, that just probably needs to happen. But where he buys the property is significant because he is choosing to bury her in the land that God has promised to give to his descendants. In other words, he is trusting that God is going to be faithful to this promise. Otherwise, he doesn't bury her here. You follow that? This is the first moment that anyone in Abraham's family owns any property in the land that God has promised to him. Until this time, he has been moving around in tents. He has been, um, he has been building altars on other people's property. <laughs> you know, like you do. In fact, he even built an altar in this particular area several chapters ago, many years ago for him. But now it's different. Now there's actually a place, a piece of property, some tangible piece of evidence that God is being faithful to his promise and that he will be faithful to his promise uh, down the road. And this is where I say it's much more significant than just he had to find a place and he got a place. He found a particular place for a particular reason. This was an act of faith, uh, trusting God to be faithful to his promise. Uh, In fact, Sarah gets buried here. Abraham will eventually be buried in the same cave, as will Isaac and Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and their son, Jacob, and his wife, Leah. They all end up buried in this same place that Abraham buys in this moment. It does become a significant thing, even though it'll still be 400 or so years before Abraham's descendants actually take possession of this land. It's a long way down the road, but this is a, uh, a marker. This is a tangible evidence, as I say, that God is going to be faithful to this prom- these promises he's made. And I don't know about you, But I think it's really interesting that the first tangible evidence that Abraham has that God is going to be faithful to these promises is an empty tomb. This is not an Easter message today, but I think you still get the connection. The first tangible evidence that we have of this kingdom that Jesus is talking about for us, the kingdom of God, that it's real, is his empty tomb. That when Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, that changes everything. That is not an insignificant moment. That is the moment that changes everything. We have, as the New Testament describes it, we have a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And that deposit, this down payment, as as it were, is the Holy Spirit. And we say, how do we know 
that the things that Jesus says are real? How do we know that that's true? How do we know that there is uh, the kingdom to come? I would say two ways, specifically. One is because of the resurrection of Jesus, and two, because of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That's not just me saying that. This is the way the New Testament talks. You can (laughs) look at it for yourself. And so we see uh, the Holy Spirit producing in us the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. As we see that happening, we know that there is this other kingdom that we are looking forward to that, yes, has already begun in our lives and that one day will be the case for all of the world. There is a sense in which there is some overlap between some of the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom that Jesus describes. And so it's easy to get them confused. But there's a difference. And this again, you know, we look at Abraham and he buys a place to bury his wife. Well, everybody in the world does that. But when he does it, there's a different motive going on, isn't there? He's buying it in this particular place because of the relationship he has with God and the promises he's made. Because he trusts God to fulfill what he's said he would do. In this world, there's overlap between uh, what it means to do good to other people. Christians believe we should do good to other people. Non-Christians believe we should do good to other people. But here's some of the distinction. Often, people will believe that you should do good to other people because of how it may benefit you. And so I will help you so that maybe one day you will help me. Or maybe you've done something good for me, so now I need to do something good for you to repay that. Is that the Christian way of doing good to others? No, that's just the worldly way. That's how do I get ahead in this world Well, maybe by doing good to others. Maybe that's a way to get a step up on that ladder. The Christian way is different. It is the doing good to others because we believe what God has said, that they are someone who is created in his image, and therefore they represent him, even if that image is really distorted. And that how we treat them shows what we believe about who he is. This is why those things that seem really insignificant actually take on a level of great significance in the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 10, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Giving a cup of cold water to a little one? Who cares? And Jesus says, I care. Because that's the kind of thing that shows where your heart really is. That is the act of faith. That is the act that says, I believe that this is a significant person, even if they cannot advantage me in this world in any way. And when we act like that, we are acting as people of faith, people who are trusting what God has said and his promises. There's a lot of talk these days of people needing to be bold in their faith, which is true. 
Unfortunately, I'm afraid we get that confused with a different kind of boldness. There are two people, if we can keep these in mind, I think this will help clarify the distinction. One is Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane who tries to cut off someone's head for Jesus. And the other is Stephen, who after Jesus has been raised from the dead, after the Holy Spirit has been given, as he is being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, prays that God would forgive the very people who are killing him. I would say that Peter was bold in his flesh and that Stephen was bold in his faith. These are very different. And a lot of the talk that I keep hearing these days on the need to be bold in our faith is using the word faith, but meaning flesh. And we need to be careful about that. Abraham here is making a decision. He is being bold in his faith. He is trusting that what God says really is the case. And he is ordering his life accordingly in this moment. Yes, Abraham has his ups and downs too, but this is one of those moments where he gets it right. Too often, we look at the promises that God has made for what is to come and act like those are ways to get ahead in this world now. They're not. Paul tells us if it's only for this life that we have this hope, we're to be pitied more than anybody. And think about the life Paul led. He was not getting ahead in this world because of his faith in Jesus. He was getting beat up and thrown in prison, shipwrecked. And he doesn't complain about it. He says, yeah, it just takes that par for the course. Yes, this is, a, why would I not expect that to be the case? But he continues to operate believing that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and that changes everything. That reorients all his priorities. He even talks in Philippians chapter 3 about the ways in which he had completely used religion to get ahead in this world and he now recognizes that's all garbage. But that actually trusting in Jesus and living that out may mean getting behind in this world. But that's what it means to live by faith, trusting that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. That though uh, many voices in this world say it is the rich and the powerful and the bold who will inherit the earth, Jesus says it's the meek. So who do we believe? As I mentioned, I think this is a significant step in the progression of Abraham's faith, of the story that God has been telling in all of human history and in the lives of his people. And this decision that Abraham makes, even during a time when he is emotionally uh, grieving and distraught, he makes a decision to live by faith, to trust in God's promises and to live accordingly. Every day, we make insignificant decisions. <laughs> you follow me? 
We make these insignificant decisions. Well, what does it matter if I do this or that or that? Every decision is an opportunity to either live by faith and trusting God and doing things his way or not. It's not always clear which is which, (laughs) but these are decisions we're making. This week, you'll have many opportunities to make decisions. Um, Many of them you will never look back on. Some of them you may look back years from now either with regret or with thanksgiving that you chose the way you did. Our challenge today is to be people who don't just deceive ourselves by listening to the word, but who actually do what it says. To be people who actually live by faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.